Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. It is Friday, January 6th, 2012. I'll get to you right this time. This is the first Christogenia on TalkShoe this year. If you haven't noticed, I'm going in... Um, but my plan is to present an entire New Testament com- commentary, basically in the order that the books are written in the Christogenian New Testament. I will intersperse that with historical shows and, as I've been doing, programs in the Minor Prophets. So tonight we're going to um, open up a discussion of the Epistle of James. Praise Yahweh, and thanks for listening. I had... Um, done most of this, well, well, not most of it, but a good deal of the New Testament with um, my former co-worker, Eli James, and, and it's my intention to replace that material with more focused material with just myself giving the commentary. A, a lot of people have informed me that they appreciate that a lot more, even though some people do miss the chemistry that, that Eli and I had working together. It's just unfortunate that, well, some people have to make left turns and turns in midstream. And to establish that assertion, I'm going to repeat a couple of things I said from from my Obadiah presentation last week. Yet, you know, so many people love Obadiah 118, right, Rob? Uh, um, <laughs> so many people love Obadiah 118. That's the only verse of Obadiah they know, and, and that's just crazy that they um, evidently ignore Obadiah 1.16, and I'm going to read that, and I'm going to keep reading it. Obadiah 1.16, when we read Revelation chapter 20, we see that, and, and Ezekiel chapter 38, we see that Satan, which is the adversary, that's all Satan is, Satan is the adversary, Satan is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist's as John says, so many antichrists have already come into the world, and they're all around us. And Satan, well, which is primarily but not limited to the international Jew, who is actually sort of like the head of Satan, well, Satan, we're told, would gather all the nations against the children of Israel. And as Psalms 118, a messianic prophecy, says, all nations have gathered against me, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Obadiah 1.16 from Brenton Septuagint says, For as thou hast drunk upon my holy mountain, and the holy mountain of Obadiah is the children of Israel, allegorically, and thou here are the children of Esau, for as thou hast drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink wine. That is all the nations of Revelations chapter 20 and Ezekiel 38, that the children of Esau, the international Jew, have gathered systematically against the children of Israel. That's the position we find ourselves in today. The white race everywhere is overrun by all the world's heathens. And Obadiah 1.16 says, So shall all the nations drink wine. They shall drink and go down, and be as if they were not. That is their future. That is the scripture. 
How could you embrace Obadiah 118 and reject Obadiah 116 unless you're a damned hypocrite who's actually ashamed of the Scripture? That's absolutely crazy. But that's what these, that these people do when they claim to be Christian identity pastors. They are really disgraces. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11 says, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, meaning the children of Israel. Though I make a full end of all the nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Well, as if that weren't enough, we see the same message in Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. The Apostle Paul had no message except for the children of, of Javan, the Japhethite, the, Japheth, the Japhethite people of ancient Athens, the Apostle Paul had no message whatsoever for any non-Israelite people. All of the people Paul wrote his epistles to were descended from the children of Israel. That includes the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Romans, all of them. That could be established in the Old Testament and in ancient historical records. Paul says at 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. But to us who are being preserved, it is the power of Yahweh. There is no saying of Scripture that nullifies any other saying. And here we have three witnesses. And I would be called by some clowns who claim to be Christian identity pastors, I would be called an exterminationist. Was Jeremiah an exterminationist? Was Obadiah an exterminationist? Jeremiah knew. He knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. He knew it 20 years, 30 years before it happened. And he told the people, as Yahweh told him, to go and tell these people that this city would be broken and that it would remain broken forever. Do you think Jeremiah wanted to stand in front of all those people and say that? That's a pretty uncomfortable position, isn't it? Those people would have called, the, the Jews among them would have called Jeremiah an exterminationist. Do you think Jeremiah wanted Jerusalem to be destroyed? Jeremiah, of course he didn't want Jerusalem to be destroyed. Of course he didn't want his home city destroyed. But he knew it was going to be destroyed. And he obeyed God. And he went and told the people that the city would be destroyed. And it was. Is that Jeremiah's fault? Is Jeremiah some sort of hater? Oh, you're a hater, Jeremiah. You're a hater for telling us this. Yeah, they locked Jeremiah up. That's what they did, but he got out. We're told not to fear men. We're told not to fear what men may do to us. But if we know the word of God... We can't withhold it from our brethren. That's the way it is. I believe the scripture. That's not being an exterminationist. That's being a lover of the word of God. I believe God. And I know from history that there isn't any nation where the children of Israel have not been scattered. 
And I know that Jeremiah said that all nations where the children of Israel were scattered shall be made a full end of. And Paul says it's folly preaching the gospel to these people because they are not written into the book of life. They are going to die. To us, to the children of Israel being preserved, it is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of that message. It's a damn shame that people in Christian identity are obviously ashamed of that message, and they're slandering and smearing people like myself and Clifton Emmerheiser because we understand and we teach that message. But that's the obligation that we have when we know it. It's folly. It's absolute folly trying to come up with a gospel message for non-Israelite people. I'm not promoting the extermination of anybody. I just know what the Scripture teaches, and I believe it. Now, no saying of Scripture nullifies any other Scripture. Forget it. If you think that one saying of Scripture nullifies another without it being explicitly stated in Scripture, such as when the sacrifice that Christ would do away with with the judgments of the law, were written into Scripture. They were written into the law. They were part of the law. No saying of Scripture nullifies another. You can't run off to some other part of the Bible and nullify one, uh, Obadiah 1.16. You can't run off to some other part of the Bible and find a way out of Jeremiah 30.11 or Jeremiah 46.28. You can't run off to some other part of the Bible and find bus tickets for Mexicans back to Mexico if Ezekiel chapter 39 says it's going to take seven months to bury the bodies. You can't do it. Forget it. You're lying. You're deceiving yourself. You're nothing but a deceiver. Ezekiel says what it says. Does it make one an exterminationist to understand that? Well, Yahweh's an exterminationist. Yahweh God will affect his judgment. Vengeance is his. It would be vain for any man to try to raise a hand and partake of the vengeance of God on his own or attribute it to himself or try to lead the charge. You're better off like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. So that's the scripture. And if you deny it, you become a denier of the word of God. You could deny me. I don't care about me. But you keep denying the word of God. God will not be mocked. So you just keep it up. I'm talking to, um, to my critics who, say, who, who love to say that that thing, he, he's a smart guy, he knows a lot of history, and he knows this and he knows that, but he's wrong about this, and he's wrong about that, and he's wrong about that. Well, well, that's because these people read their Bibles with their minds made up already. They have their minds made up, and they have their emotions set on one doctrine or another, and they look for justification from one line in the Bible or two lines in the Bible for their emotional doctrine, even though their interpretation of that line or two actually conflicts with so much other scripture. 
if you find a, cons- a conflict in Scripture, it's your understanding or your misunderstanding that is the source of the true conflict. And, and that's all I'll say about that. I'm going to keep repeating Obadiah 1.16 throughout the year. I might keep repeating it for the rest of my life, just for the hell of it. And Jeremiah 30.11, and 1 Corinthians 1.18. And there are plenty of other scriptures. This Psalm 118. I'm sorry. Yes, 1 Corinthians 118. Now Obadiah is confusing me. And, and Psalms 118. All nations are gathered about me, but in the name of God, I will destroy them. That's a messianic prophecy. It doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to destroy anybody. It applies to Yahshua Christ, our Savior. They're his words. They're not mine. And that is exterminationism encapsulated, brought to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Keep scoffing. Oh, ye scoffers, you'll have your reward. I have one more announcement to make before I proceed with James chapter 1. Christ like my revelation commentary is now available in soft cover. And, and that's my spam for the evening. That's it. I think it's $18. I'm really upset with um, the pricing. I, I really am. It's too much money. My, my hard covers are too much money. Lulu is expensive. But they're not bad at Lulu. I had to raise all the prices at Amazon.com. Now that some of my books are listed there. And I had to raise them to ridiculous levels because Amazon.com takes all the money when they sell a book. And, and, and you've got to price it ridiculously so that you get a couple of dollars. It's, it's really crazy. So, so I wouldn't, even though my books are going to be all listed at Amazon.com, I wouldn't buy one of them there. You'll always get them 20 to 25% cheaper at Lulu, and I'll make sure they're priced like that, and, and they are. So, so Lulu is the place to buy um, the Christogenian New Testament or Christrike if you so desire to do so. That's my advertisement for this month. James chapter 1. I do not see how the Hebrew name, and, and well, well, I'll talk about it. I do not see how the Hebrew name Yaakov, which is the name Jacob, the Greek Jacobus, could have possibly become James in English. And at first I pondered the notion that the translators of the King James Version were perhaps purposely flattering the king who commissioned them. However, um, that, that cannot really be since the spelling of this name in the 1560 Geneva Bible is I-A-M-E-S. And I have um, facsimiles of, of, that, of pages of that Bible. And the spelling is I-A-M-E-S, which today we would write as James. So the, the name Jacob was evidently written in English as James at least 50 years before the King James Version of the Bible was translated. When I translated the New Testament, wanting to instead be faithful to the Greek, when I translated the Christogenian New Testament, I spelled it Jacobus leaving it as it appears in the Greek nominative case. 
it can be shortened to Yaakov or Jacob, I-A-K-O-B, and still remain faithful to the Greek. The English name James, and, and this is ironic, the English name James seems to have come from the French word for leg, which is spelled J-A-M-B-E. I don't like pronouncing French. It's probably jambe or, or jam. And a related French word, jamon, J-A-M-O-N, refers to a leg of ham. Now, now the King James Version apologists have always striven to connect these two terms since Jacob does come from a Hebrew word with the meaning connected to the heel of the foot. But Yaakob, Strong's number 3290, means heel holder. And therefore, it allegorically means a supplanter. And that has nothing to do with the pig's leg, right? So, so it's amazing to me that J- J- Jacob or Jacobus became James, but that's what happened, and, and, and it wasn't really done just to flatter the king because it also appears that way in the 1560 Geneva Bible. Unless somebody has a, a better copy of the 1560 Geneva Bible that, than um, I was able to obtain facsimiles of and, um, you know, online and, and can show me otherwise, uh, I'll have to take it for granted that James is the, the um, name that Englishmen used, English writers did use long before the time of King James to translate Jacobus or Jacob in, in, the, um, in the New Testament Greek. In the New Testament, there were two men named Jacob, or James, if you prefer, and I'll call him James for the balance of this program. Two men who were associated with Christ. Now, many commentators claimed that there were three men, and at one time I thought there were more, now realizing that apparently different men are really one and the same, and we're going to get into that here. The first is James mentioned in the Gospels. The first James mentioned in the Gospels is the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. We see him first in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. He was slain by Herod. Not Herod the Great, of course. He, he was slain by, by um, Herod Antipas, as recorded in Acts chapter 12. I'm, I'm sorry, that may have been Herod Agrippa 1, in Acts chapter 12. And that happened in or around 44 AD. This here, James, the, the, the James who's the author of the epistle, is the half-brother of Christ mentioned by Jude in his epistle. He is the son of Alphaeus, mentioned along with his brother Jude in Luke chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, and he is the Lord's brother, as we see in Galatians 1.19. He is also the son of Mary, the mother of Christ, and the brother of Joseph. J-O-S-E-S, mentioned in Matthew 13.55 and Matthew 27.56. This James who wrote this epistle, commentators often call him James the Greater. However, Scripture calls him James the Less, as the King James Version has it at Mark 15.40, and I'm going to recite these Scriptures. 
These commentators believe that Mark 1540 refers to the son of Zebedee, when in fact it refers to the son of Alphaeus. He is called James the Less, for only he was the brother of both Jude and Joseph and the half-brother of Christ. And I'm going to quote Luke 16, verses 14 through 16, which enumerates the twelve apostles. And let me say that Luke's list of the twelve apostles is a little different than Matthew's and Mark's. And I believe that's because Matthew's list and Mark's list, they named twelve apostles of Christ early in the ministry of Christ. And Sadius Labahius and, and Simon the Canadian are mentioned in the list of Matthew and Mark, but they're not mentioned in Luke's list. It very well could be that they dropped out somewhere along the way or they were replaced by, by um, the brothers of Christ, eventually, who we know as James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, and that will be established here. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas, the author of the epistle, Jude. They're the same name. He's distinguished as Jude for the epistle by the King James translators, I believe, simply to avoid the obvious confusion. Luke six fourteen to 16. Simon, whom he also, meaning Christ, also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, and they are the sons of Zebedee, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, that's Matthew the author of the gospel who was the tax collector, and Thomas called Didymus, who was called Doubting Thomas, right? James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon called Zelotes, I'm sorry, that's Simon the Canadian. And Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. So we see Thaddeus Labahius is missing from this list, and so is Nathaniel. I, I would have to see, I would have to do a fuller study to see who the other person is exactly that's missing. But that's the difference in the lists of Luke and the lists of Matthew and Mark, that Jude and James, the son of Alphaeus, are not mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Luke wrote his, his gospel account from eyewitnesses. He wasn't an eyewitness himself. Matthew was an eyewitness for most of the ministry of Christ. Peter is the supplier of Mark's gospel, as I established from the ancient Christian writers several months ago here. So Luke is really a, a latecomer who came to Christianity after the Passion of Christ and who collected these, as he explains in the opening of his gospel, who collected these eyewitness accounts and wrote a historical chronicle of the ministry of Christ from the best eyewitness accounts that he could collect. And it could be very well be that Luke's listing of the Twelve Apostles is quite late. And Matthew and Mark place their listings in their Gospels quite early in the ministry of Christ. So, so it's very likely that two men may have faded to the background or, or went their way or, or whatever and, and were replaced eventually in the listing of the Twelve by the Brethren of Christ, who Paul calls apostles very clearly, and, and we'll cite that also. 
Luke gives us another list of the 12 apostles at Acts 1.13. Of course, this is after the Passion of Christ. Where he says, and when they were coming, they went up into an upper room where, bo- where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. So we see James the son of Alphaeus and Judas the brother of James in both of Luke's listings of the 12 apostles in Acts 14, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 6. Jude, in the opening of his one short epistle, at Jude 1.1 says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So we see again in Jude 1 that Jude is the brother of James, and that corroborates Luke's accounts of the listing of the 12 apostles. Luke, Acts 1, and Jude 1 all confirmed that James, the son of Alphaeus, was an apostle and that he was the brother of Jude, who was also an apostle. These men are not listed at all in Matthew and Mark. Matthew 13.55, we see this. And it's the people of, of Galilee questioning the authority which, which Christ evidently had. They, 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 he demonstrated it to them, his ability to um, do wonderful things and, and his power in the Scripture and knowledge in the Scripture. And they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, or the apostle Jude, the brother of James. We see it here again. They're half-brethren of Christ and the children of Mary. Mark 6.3 corroborates Matthew 13.55, where we also find out that Christ had sisters in addition to brothers. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Jude and Simon. So we see Jude and James are brothers, as we see in the lists of the apostles in Luke 6, and in Acts 1.13, and in the opening to Jude's epistle. And are not his sisters here with us? This is Mark 6.3. Christ had sisters as well as brothers. Mary evidently had lots of children. But we see that James and Jude and Joseph were all among the sons of Mary, the mother of Christ. So in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, talking about the passion of Christ, we see that the people who were observing his crucifixion are listed, are discussed anyway, and Matthew says, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph. And this can't be James the son of Zebedee, because then Matthew says, and the mother of Zebedee's children, who are the other James and John. So we see that Mary, the mother of Christ, was also Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. It's in Mark 6, 3. It's in Matthew 13, 55. And James and Jude are listed three times 
as apostles together. Mark 15.40 corroborates Matthew 27.56 where it says there were also women looking on afar off among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less. So we see that James the brother of Joseph and the brother of Judas James the Less according to Mark and Joseph and of Joseph, meaning Mary, the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, and Salome. Here we see that James, the brother of Joseph, who must have been the same apostle as James, the brother of Jude, in the lists in Luke and in Acts, and in the epistle to Jude, is called James the Less by Mark. And corroborating all of this is Paul in Galatians 1.19 where he says, and Paul's referring to the event described in Acts chapter 15, which is another witness establishing that the apostle James, the son of Alphaeus of Acts chapter 1, is indeed James the apostle of Acts chapter 15 and Acts 21, where Paul says, but none of the other apostles I saw except James the Lord's brother. And he can only be referring to that event in Acts 15. And there we learn that James, the son of Alphaeus, is the apostle, who is the brother of Jude and the author of this epistle. James the less is James the brother of Jude and Joseph, the son of Alphaeus and the son of Mary, and the brother of Christ. All of these relationships that were given all throughout these scriptures fit together like a glove. He is the James who wrote this epistle. I had once thought and, and felt for the mainstream commentators' errors that he was James the Elder, but that is wrong. According to Mark, he is James the son of he, he, James, the son of Zebedee, was the elder, and he was an apostle even before the Brethren of Christ, as we see in the lists at Matthew and Mark. This James, James, the son of Zebedee, as we've seen, was slain by Herod in around 44 AD. This James was slain in Jerusalem around 62 AD. Josephus later records that he was stoned shortly after the death of Festus. Now, we know Festus from the book of Acts. Festus is the governor of Judea at the time who sent Paul to Rome. And we know that story well from the Acts. Well, apparently after Paul was sent to Rome, and, and this is probably about two years after, because Paul's, um, Paul's going to Rome can be dated safely at about 60 A.D. It may have been 59. And this James was slain in Jerusalem circa 62 A.D. because we know roughly when Festus died. From Whiston's Josephus, 
This is from Antiquities, Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 20, lines 195 to 201. And I quote, And when Nero had heard what they had to say, he not only forgave them what they had already done, but he also gave them permission to let the wall they had built stand. This was granted them in order to gratify Papea, Nero's wife, who was a religious woman and had requested these favors of Nero and who gave orders to the ten ambassadors, ten ambassadors from Judea, to go their way home, but retained Helchius and Ismael as hostages with herself. Now, because of this and, and other clues, it is often assumed that Papea, Nero's wife, was a Jewess. And, and I, I, I at times want to believe that myself. But we know from the Roman analyst Tacitus, and is evidenced in archaeological sources, that Papea was actually from a Roman family of that name, and that Roman family lived in and around Pompeii, the destroyed city, where a very notable family of that name was found in the records. However, Papea, Nero's wife, was certainly, without doubt, very sympathetic to Jewish causes, and, and there's a lot of evidence of that. Back to Josephus, Antiquities 20, 196. And as soon as the king heard this news, he gave the high priesthood to Joseph, who was called Cabi, the son of Simon, who was formerly the high priest. And now Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea as the procurator. But the king deprived Joseph of the high priesthood and bestowed, bestowed the succession to that dignity on the son of Ananus, who was also himself called Ananus. Now the report goes that this oldest Ananus proved the most fortunate man, for he had five sons who would all perform the office of high priest to God, and who had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly, which had never happened to any other of our high priests. But this younger Ananus, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who were very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Judeans, as we have already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled a Sanhedrin of the judges. Sanhedrin, that's a Greek word. That's Sunhedrion. Sunhedrion means a council. That's all it means. And, and for some foolish reason, a lot of classical translators who read too many Jewish books refused to translate it. He assembled a council of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. Whose name was James and some others or 
an alternate translation is, and some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and such as were the most uneasy at the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done, but it was done. They also sent the king, the king who was Agrippa at this time, the same king that we see in Acts chapter um, Acts chapter 27. Agrippa was the king of um, Galilee and, and some of the adjoining districts that he was rewarded. He was named a king much later in, in history, long after the time of Christ. Herod Agrippa one that was um that Christ was sent to at the crucifixion, he was um he was a tetrarch, right? Herod the Tetrarch. Well, well his successor Herod his son and successor Herod Agrippa II, he was made a king by the Romans. They also sent to the king desiring him to send to Ananus that he should act so no more slap on a wrist. For what he had already done was not to be justified. Nay, some of them went also to meet Albinus, and he was upon his journey from Alexandria and informed him that it was not lawful for Ananus to assemble a Sanhedrin, a council, without his consent. Whereupon Albinus complied with what they said and wrote in anger to Ananus and threatened that he would bring him to punishment for what he had done on which account King Agrippa took the high priesthood from him when he had ruled but three months and made Jesus the son of Damnius high priest. So we see that that name, Jesus, it was actually a pretty popular name in first century Palestine. It means Yahweh saves. And we see some of these other names are pretty popular actually also. And, and we recognize them from the New Testament, but these are different people. And, and this is... Um, 32 years after, or, or 30 years after the crucifixion. So we see that James, this James, the half-brother of Christ and the author of this epistle, was stoned unlawfully by one of the Sadducees who were political flunkies that were appointed the high priesthood at the will of, well, well, at this time it was Herod Agrippa II, who, who actually was granted the authority by the Romans to depose and appoint high priests. Even though Jerusalem was not really in his exact jurisdiction, he still made the claim, he, he still made an appeal to Rome that he should be able to do that, and, and it was granted And just like the Herods who were before him, that they um, used the high priesthood as a political tool. And, and one man had five sons that were high priests. And under the Hebrew law, of course, the high priest had to be a descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron, and, and it was a, an appointment for life. And there were no politics involved, or at least little politics involved. So that's my introduction to the book of James. And we see exactly who he is and exactly how he died. James 1, chapter 1. 
Jacobus, servant of Yahweh and Prince Joshua Christ, James, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Imagine that. A lot of commentators call this epistle of James, and, and this takes a lot of nerve, a Jewish book because of this salutation. They are all fools. It is utterly ridiculous to imagine that any of the tribes of the dispersions of Israel, dispersions which occurred in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., 800 years before the death of James, began the deportations of the children of Israel. It's utterly ridiculous to imagine that any of these people were ever considered to be Jews. The people known to us as Jews developed as a conglomeration of diverse tribes in the 2nd century B.C. out of a remnant minority of Israelites who just happened to have a military advantage over the surrounding peoples who were Edomites and various other Canaanite and other tribes of late Judea, other tribes that had been brought in by the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the 5th and 6th centuries B.C., of which there is much historical record, both in the Bible and in inscriptions. We have much historical record that the Maccabees, around 130 B.C., converted all the Edomites to Judaism and many of the Canaanite and other surrounding peoples, forcibly. And as Josephus says in Antiquities Book 13, from that point on, they were known as none other than Judeans or of the word, which is popularly, popularly translated Jews. Associating Jews with Israelites is kind of like associating Orientals and Mexicans currently inhabiting American cities with the Saxon founders of this nation who founded it 200 years ago. It's like seeing a Negro walk down the street who calls himself an American and imagining that his forebears founded this nation. It's utterly ridiculous. So it is, if we find it folly to do something like that in modern America, we should find it equally folly to do something like that in ancient Judea, taking the replacement population and attributing to the replacement population the feats of the former population. Yes, yeah, sure, there were a remnant of the former population in Judea, but they were only a minority just like white Anglo-Saxons in America today are fast becoming a minority. History repeats itself because stupid white people don't learn from it. Real simple. Don't forsake your heritage to your enemies. The Israelites were certainly not Jews. Don't fall for that trick. Josephus the Judean historian, attests to an innumerable multitude of Israelites beyond the Euphrates from him. In his time, 
And in a different place, he states that he wrote his book of the wars of the Judeans for the benefit of the northern barbarians, as he calls them. In his book of the wars, he recounts wars of the Alans and other Scythian tribes, indubitably considering them to be of import to the Judeans, whose wars he is recounting. However, in chapter 7, in book 7 of his book, Wars of the Judeans, it is also revealed that there were writings concerning the Scythians that Josephus had made and which are now clearly wanting. There were no innumerable multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates in northern Mesopotamia at any time in this period that Josephus wrote. We know all the peoples of this period and everywhere they dwelt from Greek and Roman historians and geographers. Aside from other biblically identifiable people such as the Medes, there were only innumerable multitudes of proto-Germanic peoples in this area at this time. When I say proto-Germanic peoples, I mean the Alans and the Scythians and other so-called Caucasians, and they were Josephus's northern barbarians. And these are the people, along with the Galatians, the Dorian Greeks, the Romans, and the Illyrians, and the other descendants of the anciently dispersed Israelites to whom James is writing. They are the 12 tribes scattered abroad. From Winston's Josephus, Antiquities, Book 11, 131 to 133, talking about the time of Ezra. When Ezra had received this letter, he was very joyful and began to worship God and confessed that he had been the cause of the king's great favor to him and that for the same reason he gave all the thanks to God. So he read the letter at Babylon to those Judeans who were there, but he kept the letter to himself. He kept the letter itself and sent a copy of it to all those of his own nation that were in media. This is approximately 458. BC. And when these Judeans had understood what piety the king had toward God and what kindness he had for Ezra, they were all greatly pleased. Nay, many of them look, took their effects with them and came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem. But then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country. Now let me say that the only people that Herodotus and the other classical Greeks Greek writers put in media besides the Medes are the Scythians. And here we see a large number of Israelites in media. Imagine that. As Diodorus Siculus attests, the Scythians had their origins along the Arachis River in northern media. And came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem, but then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country. Therefore, there were but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans. And Josephus is talking about the remnant of Judah and Benjamin. And that's how he is reckoning them. 
those who returned, those of the returnees who came back to Jerusalem. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now. Who's beyond Euphrates when we look at the history books at this time? And Josephus says, and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. When we look at the history books at this time, we see the Sake, who are also known as the Scythians, or the Sakans, or the Galatahi, and several other names. We see the Parthians, and we see the Alans, who were, cre- who were converted to Christianity at a very early time. While they were um, not the Catholic sect of Christianity, they were Christians nevertheless. They were Aryan Christians. And we see other groups descended from the ancient Israelites of the Assyrian deportations across the Euphrates at this time. But we don't see any Jews. We only see what I would call the proto-Germanic people, who all made their way into, into Western Europe in due time. Well, well, at least portions of them all had made their way into Western Europe into due time and became the people that we know as Germans. Some of them had left long before this, the Chimerians and, and the first Sake coming into Europe had gone into Europe as early as 600 B.C. in large numbers. They have to be, historically, and we see that in Josephus and we see in Ezra, historically, they have to be the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as we've already demonstrated here over the last several weeks, that the Galatians, well, who are a part of these people, actually, and the Dorian Greeks and the Illyrians and the Trojans and the Romans are also parts of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, along with other peoples descended from the ancient Phoenicians. That's the people to whom James addresses this letter. This letter is not addressed to Jews, as the commentators so errantly state. James 1, chapter 2. I'm sorry, verse 2. <laughs> Regard it with all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith results in endurance. But the endurance must have a finished work in order that you would be perfect and complete, wanting in nothing. Peter and Paul both also connected the suffering the suffering of trials with the test of the faith. Peter calls these the trials of fire. Christians do not suffer the fires of hell after death. Rather, the trials of fire are those things which we suffer here in this life. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 in which you must rejoice, if for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So we see the fire, the trials of fire, are the trials which we endure in this life. 
And Paul, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Consequently, we ourselves are boasting in you among the assemblies of Yahweh for your endurance and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions which you are bearing, a token of the righteous judgment of God for which you are to be deemed worthy of the kingdom of Yahweh for which you also suffer. And Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And not only, but we should also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction results in endurance and the endurance in a tried character and the tried character in an expectation, and the expectation does not disgrace, because the love of Yahweh has been been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which is given to us. Christians should not expect a comfortable life and wealth and the riches of this world. We should rejoice in the trials which we face and overcome. James 1.5 Now if one of you wants wisdom, he must ask from Yahweh, who gives to all sincerely and without reproaching, and it shall be given to him. But he must ask with faith, doubting nothing. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea being driven and blown about by the wind. For that man must not suppose that unless that, that he shall receive anything from the prince, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The understanding of this verse comes in where we should ask. Paul states repeatedly that Christ is our wisdom. One example being 1 Corinthians 1.30 where he states in part that you are in Christ Yahshua who has become wisdom to us from God. Yet the model for inquiry which the New Testament provides again and again is inquiry through the scriptures. This is not merely some inner soul-seeking that the Hindus and the Taoists and any practitioner of Buddhism or voodoo may also engage in. In chapter 4 of his epistle, James refers to the disputes among us. And then, in verse 5 of that chapter, he cites the scripture. He also refers to the scripture for understanding twice in chapter 2 of this epistle in verses 8 and 23. That is the example of James. That is how we should inquire of God. We should search his word and let his word be the authority. And like I said at the beginning of this session tonight, when we read the Bible and see what it says, we'd be a lot better off believing it rather than trying to find support for our own contentions in its pages and take things out of context when we think we found something that's agreeable to us. For the same reason Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all writing inspired of God not all writing is inspired of God. All writing that is inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education, which is in righteousness, that the man of Yahweh would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works. Paul asks several times in his letters, what saith the scripture? That's where we inquire. 
and Christ consistently referred to those same scriptures. He did not tell the Pharisees to go search their souls when they disagreed with him. Rather, he told them to go search the scripture. It is through scripture and not through our emotions that we are to inquire of God. In 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul states that sound doctrine is the words of Joshua Christ. If anyone teaches differently and does not capitulate to sound words, those of our prince, Joshua Christ, and to the doctrine in accordance with piety, he is conceited, standing upon nothing, but is mad for inquiries and arguments over semantics from which come envy, strife, blasphemies, wicked suspicions, constant contentions, corrupting the minds of men and defrauding them of the truth, supposing piety to be a means of gain. Sounds like some people I know. Proverbs 4.1 Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, as we've seen Christ is our wisdom. It was true in Romans, and it's true in Proverbs. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor. When thou dost embrace her, she shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she shall deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, for the years of thy life shall be many. So if we want to inquire with God, we better start with our Bible, not with our emotions, not with our feelings about something. James 1.9 The lowly brother must boast in his grandeur, but the wealthy in his humiliation. Because as a flower of grass, he shall pass away. The lowly brother must boast in his grandeur. His knowledge that his poor state accounts for his glory in the life to come. As Christ tells us in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The humble shall be exalted. The meek shall inherit the earth. One Peter one twenty four quotes Isaiah forty verse six All flesh is as grass. And we see that here in James. But the humble and the meek are those those men who lay aside their own purposes and submit themselves to the word of God. 
it's not humility when you appear to be a nice, soft-spoken man and, and condescend to everyone that you speak to. That's not humility. That's vain humility. There's a difference. It's humility when you do as Christ says, Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Read the word of God and believe it, and you are a humble man. Read the word of God, and no matter how nice you act to somebody else, if you have your own ideas which are contrary to the word of God, you are a vain and pompous ass. You're not humble at all. Your acting will not hold up to scrutiny. And when you're criticized, you won't be able to handle it. You start crying exterminationist or other ridiculous slanders. James 1.11, for the sun rises with burning heat and parches the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Thusly also the wealthy with his purposes wastes away. The intonation here is much stronger than the King James translation reveals. This verse clearly shows us that the purposes of wealthy men are contrary to the purposes of God. The purposes of those who seek wealth, who seek the riches of this world, are always contrary to the purposes of God. The plans that the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the Gateses and the Buffets and all of those other princes of this world have to mold the world into their own perverted image. We should know that all of those plans shall come to naught. Believe your Bible. There have been many other Rothschilds in the past, and their plans also came to naught. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who endures trial. Because being approved, he shall receive the crown of life, which he promised to those who love him. No one being tried must say that, from Yahweh I am tried. For Yahweh is not able to be tempted by evil, and he tries no one. But each is tried by his own desires, being drawn out and enticed. Then the desire conceiving gives birth to error or sin, and the sin being accomplished brings forth death. The sin being accomplished, being performed, brings forth death. First, a lot of commentators see a conflict between this verse and Matthew chapter 6, where in teaching the apostles how to pray, Christ says in his prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many commentators, I'll call them, even want to amend the King James Version here. However, in the King James, in Matthew chapter 6, in the prayer which we know as the Our Father, the verb is translated correctly. It's an active verb of the second person singular. Asking God not to lead us into temptation. There's no doubt the Greek, in that one instance in the King James, is correctly translated. 
Does God lead men into temptation? The truth is that Yahweh, being God, cannot help but know long in advance what trials men must face, what temptations they shall encounter, and what men, which men of us, will either succumb or overcome, and what things we will succumb to and what things we will be able to overcome. Yahweh says, I create good and evil, and he does say that in the prophets. But evil, in that case, isn't evil to him. It's evil to us. It's evil to us when we screw up and suffer the punishments, and we feel that the punishments are evil, when they're really just the inevitable reward that we've achieved in screwing up. It's the inevitable fruit of what we have sown. Sin and punishment are simply often cause and effect. The prayer of Christ acknowledges the ultimate sovereignty of God. The admonition by James reminds us that we cannot blame God when we succumb to temptation. Yahweh allowed Job to be tempted and tried by the adversary. And Job was considered righteous because he did not curse God for his misfortune. As, if you read chapter 1 of Job, the adversary vainly claimed that he would. So that is the righteousness of Job. And he was rewarded for it. James here describes the stages of sin. And Clifton has pointed this out in a, in a pamphlet several years ago. Each is tried by his own desires being drawn out and enticed, seduced, tempted. Then the desire, conceiving, gives birth to sin. And the sin, being accomplished, being performed, brings forth death. These are the stages of sin. If the error conceived in a thought is not actually performed, then there is no need for judgment. This passage, as Clifton has pointed out, exposes the folly of Ted Whelan and all of those clowns who claim that Eve was somehow only mentally deceived. Paul explains that while Eve was deceived, sin came into our society through Adam when the transgression occurred, as I translate that line in 1 Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe. Here we see that sin demands an act and is not merely the result of a thought, and that judgment would be executed if the act occurs the result of which is death. Unlike the government and the Jews, there are no thought crimes before God. Yes, there are evil thoughts, and God tells us there are evil thoughts. But evil thoughts which are not performed are not punishable by the law. Judgment, righteous judgment, requires an actual act in order to be executed. Adam and Eve could not have been punished 
if there was no act, if Eve's seduction was only a mental seduction, as Ted Whelan claims. There had to be an actual act performed, wrongful act performed, in order for it to be sin. James 1.16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, descending from the Father of lights, with whom there is not a variation or shade of change. Colloquially, we could say that there wouldn't be a hint of change. That Yahweh does not change, not in the slightest. Not one shade of variation or change. Every word of scripture coming from God is true, and there is no change. And that ties in with what I said opening this session tonight. That no scripture invalidates any other scripture. When a conflict is perceived, there are several sources from which it may come. From corrupted manuscripts, and it can be established that in a couple of places the manuscripts are corrupted. That can be established through exegesis, through the study of grammar, or through comparisons in manuscripts. It can be from a bad translation, which happens more often. And even more often than that, it could be from personal agendas, which is usually the case. So when we see conflict in Scripture, we have to first check our agenda. We have to first do a proper exegesis of the verse. We have to understand its context. And we have to check the translations and the manuscripts. But there's no conflict in Scripture. There are only conflicts in our understanding and the occasional bad translation and corrupted manuscript. But those can be established by examining the original manuscripts and the original languages. Very simple. No scripture invalidates another because Yahweh does not change. God does not change. Every good gift comes from God. Because God supplies us with the ability to care for our brother. When we have gifts to share with our brethren, we must understand that those gifts come from God, and we thank him for them. If you take care of your brother, do not expect to be praised. If you're praised in this life, you have no reward in heaven. Christ explains that very well in the parable. Rather, you expect your brother to be thankful and to praise God that you were able to help him. That's the way it works. Don't seek the praise of men. Seek to obey your God and help your brother. Real simple. Your praise, your reward will be in heaven. If you seek your reward for helping your brother here, you have no reward in heaven. It's that simple. That way we don't help our brother with pretense, expecting the praises of men, like the Jews do, when they give money to museums and want big plaques in the public eye. That's what the Jews do. That's their reward. They have no reward in heaven. 
they're never going to see heaven. James 1.18. Having desired, he brought forth, he brought us forth in the word of truth for us to be some first fruit of his creations. The word of truth is Christ himself, and that is what James refers to here. John called him the word made flesh and the word of life. The Old Testament scriptures were seen as another manifestation of that same word. And Christ is the word of God come to life. For he is Yahweh our God. Therefore, the best lens for understanding the Old Testament scripture is the gospel. If any interpretation of the Old Testament conflicts with the gospel, it is certainly an error. Likewise, interpretations of the gospel must agree with the law and the prophets. The Bible is one book. Verse 19. The word of truth, I'm sorry, you know, my beloved brethren, that every man must be quick for which to listen, slow for which to speak, slow for anger. Indeed, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of Yahweh. Vengeance belongs to God. On which account, laying aside every filth and residue of evil, which is man denying the scripture and attempting to take vengeance into his own hands. Accept with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James refers to what we may also see at Jeremiah 31:33, when he says the implanted word. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The implanted word is literally written upon our hearts. It's in our genes. It's always been there. If only we would obey it. Psalm 68:11. Yahweh gave the word, great was the company of those that published it. And Psalm 119:11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. When we contemplate On the scripture, when we contemplate on the word of God, it keeps us focused and it keeps us from sin. Verse 22. Now you must be doers of the word and not hearers only, defrauding yourselves. Because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror, for he observes himself and departs and immediately forgets of what sort he was or of what kind he was, of what sort of race he was. The King James Version translates this verse, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. There are problems with that. The word translated natural in the King James, natural being an adjective, the word which they translated natural is not an adjective modifying the noun face. 
The King James Version. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man holding his natu- beholding his natural face in a glass. It's translated, the same Greek is translated here, because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror. This is a significant difference. Once a reader of, of Christagenia.org wrote to me and stated, and I quote, at verse 23, change race to face, he thought I had made a typographical error. It is true that errors in typing, where one word is substituted for another and then, and, and then it being properly spelled is not detected by spell checking software, errors like that are very common. And while I do imagine that people will find errors in my translations, because no man is perfect, this is not one of them. My translation of this phrase here in question, the appearance of his race is the appearance of his race purposely and correctly, and I will explain why and try to keep it short. The words in question are five Greek words. And the Greek reads, to prosopon tes genesios auto, which translated into English words and characters, tos prosopon is the appearance, tes genesios is of the race, and auto is of him or simply his, the appearance of his race. The words toprosopan are a noun with the definite article in the accusative case. Therefore, they are the object of the verb translated observing. The words tes genesios are respectively a noun with the definite article and the pronoun, I'm sorry, tes genesios auto, Auto being the pronoun. And they're both in the genitive case, which indicates source or possession. Together here, they are treated as an adjectival phrase, modifying the noun prosopon by the King James and most other translators. And while the phrase itself may be an adjectival phrase, the words are still nouns, and they cannot be merely reduced to an adjective, where the King James has his natural face. That's basically a deception. It's an oversimplification. The Greek language had other adjectives that fit such a purpose that were actually adjectives. The word prosopon, and we'll discuss this word again in chapter 2, is defined by Liddell and Scott as the face, the visage, or the countenance. It's one's look one's outward appearance or beauty. The word genesios is the genitive form of the word genesis, from which we have the English word genesis. And it's defined as an origin, a source, a productive cause, a beginning, a manner of birth, a race, or a descent. In the context of James 1.23 here, speaking of the sight of a person in a mirror, I have translated the word race, and I would assert that descent, origin, or source 
would bear the same meaning in this case. But it would also only be masking the intent of the statement if any of those were employed in place of the word race. The clause can only be read, the appearance of his race, since genesios is a genitive noun. It's not an adjective. Case genesios auto means of his race. All of this is supported by a comment found at the word face in the New American Standard Bible, which is actually quite surprising. In that comment, which is in a footnote on this verse, it is stated that the phrase literally means the face of his birth or nature. Yet I would assert that neither do they understand the literal and true meaning of the phrase. They don't want to understand it. Phrases such as the face of his birth or the appearance of his birth make little sense to us today. One's nature is one's race. You could say the appearance of his birth what the little baby looked like when he was born. James meant exactly that, the appearance of his race. The message here is that although we may be children of Adam, although we may be children of Israel, born in the image and likeness of Yahweh our God, this by itself is not enough unless we are also doers of the word of God, then we are certainly not doing well because we are not performing to the intent of our creator. By using this phrase, the appearance of his race, James also indicates to us that every race here on earth, as we know the term, were not born in the image and likeness of God. Otherwise, what sense would James's analogy make? If you're born in the image and likeness of God and you are not a doer of the word of God, if you do not practice, if you do not put to use the word of God, then you're useless. You're a washing machine that doesn't wash clothes. You're a microwave oven that doesn't heat water. I'm not saying microwaves are good, but I'm just making an analogy. You're a car that doesn't drive. Being a child of God, our looks and our descent are useless to us if we're not doers of the word of God. That's what James is saying here. And Christ would give us our portion with those who are outside, right? The bastards, the sorcerers, the Jews, with the godless. But he peering into the perfect law of freedom and abiding by it, not being a forgetful hearer but a doer of work, he shall be blessed by his deed. James gets into the idea of faith without works later on in his epistle, and I will cover it at length there. Here I would like to talk about the perfect law of freedom. What is the perfect law of freedom? 
The perfect law of freedom is the fact that the children of Israel were freed from the judgments of the law by the propitiation of Christ. That's why James uses the term the perfect law of freedom. He peering into the perfect law of freedom. This is something that first century Jews did not understand. This is something that Paul, throughout his epistles, had to consistently address. Because, as the gospel was spread throughout the dispersion of Israel, throughout the white world of ancient Europe, the Jews were following behind, trying to subject people to the law and to the circumcision, and trying to basically convert the dispersed Israelites, to Judaism. Contrary to the gospel, which freed us from the ancient rituals of the temple and the laws of Moses, found in the judgments of the law. That's the world that Paul struggled through throughout his entire ministry. That's the world that we see in all of Paul's epistles. It's something that many people today in Christian identity still do not understand. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. That liberty which we have is the liberty from the judgments of the law, from the ancient ritual sacrifices and punishments of the law, to which our Israelite ancestors were certainly obligated. This is what Paul strove to explain in his epistle to the Romans. For instance, at the end of chapter 3, where he explained that all men sinned, yet for us there is propitiation in Christ which is granted freely. However, that does not give us license to further sin. Paul also said in that same place that we should voluntarily seek to establish the law of God for that reason. Because we are not going to be judged by the law, we should seek, we should be grateful all the more to establish the law in righteousness. Not pharisaically by desiring to rule over our brother. In Romans chapter 7, Paul again explained that we, Israel the wife, were free from the law upon the death of the husband who was God. That was the relationship that the ancient nation had with God. That is why the law was given. The law was a prenuptial agreement. The ancient Israelite nation allegorically was the bride of Yahweh, the bride of God. We were free from the law upon the death of the husband. That's what Paul's explaining in Romans chapter 7, which was effected in Christ. Yet we should be bound to Christ in his resurrection, which is a sign of the promise to us that we shall live in spite of the law and in spite of our sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, but now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held in other words, we were under the judgments of the law, and because our ancient Israelite, Israelite ancestors 
were put off from the kingdom and polity of God because of the things that they had done, they were all deserving of death. And Yahweh forestalled that judgment and chose to die for us. That is the mystery of Christ's dying for our sins and our reconciliation to God. Paul said it, Romans 7, 6, but now we are delivered from the law that being dead in what we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. Because the letter of the law and the contentions and disputes, and, and this is part of our lesson, this is why the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The disputes and contentions over interpretations and the doctrines of men concerning the letter of the law led to a very unjust and uneven and sometimes cruel and harsh interpretation and execution of the judgments of the law. In the spirit of Christ and love for our brother, we don't judge our brother harshly. We don't judge our brother at all. None of us are in a position to judge our brother. We put the sinners out of our community, and God will judge them. That's what we do. That's what we're told. That's the story of, of um, that, that's the entire theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we see what the perfect law of freedom is, mentioned by James, and that's that same law of liberty mentioned by Peter, and Paul explains it at length. Throughout several of his, his epistles, it, it's actually the theme of Romans chapters 2 through, through 7, through eight, 2 through 8, perhaps. And, and it's also the theme of much of Galatians chapters 3 and 4. James 1.26. If one supposes to be religious, not guiding his tongue with the bridle, but deceiving his heart, his religion is vain. Pure and undefiled religion before God and Father is this, to watch over orphans and widows in a tribulation, to keep oneself unblemished from society. Pious acting is not a sufficient display of faith. Rather, it is self-deception for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. But we should bridle our tongues, and even though we all do it, and I certainly have done it, we should try not to speak vainly in anger. We should keep ourselves away from the wicked temptations of the world and look out for and provide for our brethren, our less fortunate brother, whenever we can. That is what James here is defining as true religion. To watch over orphans and widows in their tribulation and to keep ourselves unblemished from society. That's my presentation of James chapter 1. And I thank you all for listening tonight. I'll be here next week with James chapter 2. I'll be here tomorrow night, Christoginia Saturdays. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. I, I have not yet made up my mind. That, that might be slothful of me. I will probably present one of my papers. I have a few papers in mind, The Seat of Inheritance. Um, translating John 1.11 to 13 should be good. I might do that. I'll decide in the morning. 
I want to thank you all for being here, and praise Yahweh. I'll see you tomorrow. Good night.